This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would once again, by your Spirit, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When you fly internationally, remember when you used to be able to do that kind of thing, um, that there are often many classes of travel on one plane, from what I affectionately call the cattle class near the rear of the plane, with which I'm particularly familiar, uh, to all sorts of better options that include fancy lounges at the airport, additional legroom on board, upgrades, priority boarding, wider seats, special food, and on the world's premier airlines, I'm told even private double suites are available. And at the end of the day, yes, Singapore Airlines, you can check it out later, I'm not on commission. Um, when it... When, when it comes to the very best seats, it all comes down to one thing, money. But what about in the church? Today, we're continuing in the New Testament letter of James, and chapter 2 begins with a challenge to the churches not to show favoritism by giving the best seats and the greatest honor to those who appear to be the wealthiest. Of course, we all know which the best seats are in church. They're at the back, and uh, some of you have got those. That's very good. <laughs> Jesus contrasts the treatment that a person, I say Jesus, James, the Apostle James, James is contrasting the treatment that a person with gold rings and fine clothes might receive with the way a poor person in scruffy clothes might be received. And James writes, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. And when we pause for a moment to remember in whom we believe, in whom we put our trust, and who is the one that we worship in all his glory, then we can see how utterly ridiculous, pitiful, and foolish it is when we allow ourselves to be influenced by the world's paltry ideas of glory, which nearly always have to do with money, sex, and power. Instead, James exhorts us to consider our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to hear me say that a few times this morning. It's in the first verse of our reading, and every word is pregnant with meaning. And I, and I, I really would like to unpackage them, but I, I'm not. We'll be here all day. And it is this royal law of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ concerning which James exhorts us to listen, to trust, and to obey. This royal law is what James describes as the law of liberty. It's the law by which we shall be judged, not by one another, but by Jesus the just judge, the one who is the essence of truth and love, justice and mercy. Loving your neighbor as yourself has always been what God has required of his people. Indeed, James here is quoting from Leviticus in the Old Testament. 
And Jesus likewise quotes this in his summary of the law. I hope we're all very familiar with this summary. The, the celebrant says this at the start of our liturgy every week, and we said it today. Of course, being reminded that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves is easier said than done. After all, the world is full of people in need, and there are far more neighbors than we can possibly love. So what's the right Christian response? Clearly, it is not to stick our heads in the sand, spiritualize the needs of others, offer to pray, but then do nothing. Faith without works is what? Dead. The great Reformation theologian and pastor John Calvin wrote this, faith alone justifies. But faith which justifies is never alone. Or in other words, you cannot earn your salvation. You're not saved by your good deeds. You are saved in order to do good works. Indeed, that's precisely what St. Paul writes elsewhere in the Scriptures. James' point is not that you can earn your salvation by loving your neighbor. Rather, he is saying that genuine faith will be evidenced by how you love your neighbor. John Stott helpfully addresses the problem of there being more neighbors to love than we can possibly do so. And he suggests a threefold response. First, we must each discover our own calling. Not everyone is called to work in a homeless shelter or on the front lines of poverty. What is your calling? What is our calling? The outworking of the royal law is, of course, principally demonstrated not when we're in church together, but Monday through Saturday. The church, that is the people of God, the living stones, though wonderfully, joyfully gathered together this morning here and in many other places throughout the world, usually spends more time scattered. We're in the marketplace, we're in the schools, in the neighborhood, working at our various jobs. So it is in our vocations and homes and workplaces that we get to live out the royal law and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we may do this in health centers, hospitals, homes, and schools, perhaps very obviously helping and caring for others. Or we may do this less obviously as we do our work as to the Lord in labs, cubicles, online, or in the office. Well, second, in the light of the, all the need there is, we need to respect each other's callings. It's not our place to judge a brother or sister in Christ who works in a context very different from our own. While we do need to heed the warnings to the rich, not to show partiality to the poor, and frankly, none of us are really let off the hook by that. Compared to most in the world, we are all rich. But we're not to judge the rich or those who are richer than us merely for being wealthy. There may be some wealthy Christians who live in beautiful homes and drive nice cars, and they may seem to us never to come near a poor, homeless, or hungry person. And yet, perhaps unknown to us, such a wealthy person may serve in a quiet and unsung way. Perhaps that person does give very generously out of their wealth. And maybe they give their time as well, or their expertise. Or maybe they don't. Well, 
they will have to answer to the king, King Jesus. We're not called to judge. As I think about our calling at Ascension, I'm mindful that it's not likely, well, it isn't the same as the calling of every other church. I mean, as we look around us as to where we are, we've been called to serve in this neighborhood, this context, this time and place. If Ascension were situated in rural Pennsylvania or a leafy suburb, the opportunities and the challenges for our immediate neighbors would likely be different. And yet here we are, surrounded by 50,000 university students, plus many thousands of people who, at all ages and stages of life, who live in the apartment buildings all around us, or the condos. Well, third, in the light of all the need to love our neighbors, we must enter into each other's calling. And I think this is a good check on any temptation we may have to kind of wash our hands of this royal law to love our neighbors as ourselves. And even though it may not be our call to live in the roughest areas of the city or go to the poorest areas of the world, we must nevertheless stand behind, support, and pray for those who do. It's worth remembering also this letter of James was not written to an individual. It was written to a group of churches, to the church at large. And so we need to hear these words collectively. We're members of the body of Christ together. We're trustees, stewards, servants of the king's commission to the world. And James teaches us three important truths about this command to love one another. First, because it is the royal law, the law that uh, was affirmed and reiterated, taught and demonstrated by King Jesus himself, we should want to obey this law, law out of our love and loyalty to the king. Second, because it is not merely a suggestion or a high ideal, but rather a command, we must obey it. And of course, there were always challenges to our loyalty to King Jesus. During the time of the Reformation in England, Bishop Hugh Latimer faced such a challenge. One day, he was preaching when King Henry VIII was in the congregation, which I would think would be pretty intimidating, or certainly could be. But just before he preached, one of the king's attendants said to Bishop Latimer, 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 the king of England is here. Be careful what you say. Well, the bishop's deacon, who always stood next to him also, said to him quietly, Latimer, Latimer, the king of kings is here. Be careful what you say. Our loyalties are frequently tested. Well, third, this command to love our neighbor is part of the law of liberty. And because that is true, not only should we want to obey it, not only must we obey it, but actually we can obey it by the power and presence and equipping of God's Holy Spirit. God's law is not a heavy burden or a crushing yoke. It is the law that sets us free. Today, we see all around us so much that is being deconstructed, torn down or abandoned, particularly in the realm of ideas and ideals and morals, often done, I might add, in the name of freedom or justice. 
One example of this would be in regard to sex and marriage. Why would something so desirable and so promising be reserved for marriage? How could God's law of sex being only appropriate within the holy covenant of marriage between one man and one woman be a law of freedom? Surely that's outdated or prudish or just plain wrong. Haven't we moved on from that? Well, we could argue that God's teaching about marriage hasn't changed and has been around for thousands of years, and that would be true. We could argue that up until very recently, it was almost universally accepted around the planet, even if not always actually obeyed, and that would be true. But whether we appeal to tradition, scripture, or reason, some may say, well, I just don't, I don't want to abide by that. I want to be free to make my own choices. I want to be free to be myself. I want to be free to be authentic. But what does that even mean? What is our real, authentic human self? The truth is, when we pursue our very personal wants, desires, and individual freedoms, they so often produce not freedom, but bondage. Not happiness, but deep sadness. Perhaps one example might be uh, with so-called recreational drugs that promise freedom, but end up enslaving those who use them in addiction. The Bible is by no means silent on what it means to be fully human. We are made in the image of God. And the law of liberty reminds us of this. Our true freedom depends on discovering how we can give expression to our true nature as God's beloved children, made in the image of God, male and female. And the Bible tells us this is good. Law and liberty, far from being opposites for the Christian, are actually two sides of the same coin. As we live our lives according to our Maker's instructions, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so we discover that we are free to live as He calls, purposes, and wants us to live. But when I am a law unto myself, then I find not freedom, but bondage. And this is one of the reasons why we need not fear or be embarrassed about pointing people to God's law, which is the way to real happiness, fulfillment, and the way to being our true selves. Of course, by God's grace, with God's help, absolutely. The tension in all of this is that we live in a world that is, as James reminds us, marked by favoritism and partiality, meritocracy, lawlessness, selfishness, and brokenness of every conceivable kind. We see so much bondage and so little freedom. Too often we experience disunity, not unity. And perhaps nowhere is this more obvious today than in our nation. One of the things I so love and appreciate about this country and makes me deeply grateful to be an American is the can-do mentality, particularly in the face of a crisis. This weekend, we've been remembering the 20-year anniversary of that dreadful 9-11 terrorist attack. Seeing some of the video footage of the planes striking the Twin Towers and hearing some of the news stories have brought back so many 
memories. And for some, these memories are traumatic and very painful. Anyone over 30 knows exactly where they were and what they were doing when they heard the terrible news that clear September morning. Alongside the brutal attacks, in the midst of the mayhem, we saw first responders rushing towards danger. And there are countless stories of heroism, self-sacrifice, and kindnesses, large and small. I saw one interview with some of the boat captains that were involved in rescue operations that day. Somehow I had missed this part of the story. But many, many people were rescued from Manhattan because when the towers fell and everywhere is chaos and filled with dust and there's no public transport, people ran to the water. 500,000 people were rescued by boat and the people self-organized. It was a tremendous feat. How remarkably united we were as a nation in the aftermath of that day. And not just here in America, but across the world, we stood together. What a contrast today. Just 20 years later, we are divided. We are polarized. There is so much anger and frustration and division. We've seen many images this past week, I imagine, that have reminded us of those attacks, not just in New York, but on the Pentagon, and nearer to us in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 97 came down. But as I was reading about all those rescued by boat in New York, I was reminded of the great Statue of Liberty that stands so prominently in New York Harbor. And written on the inside of the plinth on which that statue is placed are those well-known words from the poem New Colossus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What a profound message of welcome. And how are we doing? In this land of immigrants, we have a rich, generous, and noble history that is, at the same time, a history marked by things shameful and proud. We are a complex people, sometimes selfless, generous, brave, and true, sometimes selfish, greedy, arrogant, and false. Now, I'm not going to turn this sermon into a political or national speech, but I do think we need to hear afresh the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The call of Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is a call to us, his people, made in the image of God, called to be the church. We have our marching orders. We have our commission. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. The tagline for our More Than Stones campaign is welcoming our neighbors, reaching the nations. This is not some hollow jingle. It's an expression of this royal law to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
And remarkably for us here at Ascension in this particular location, at this moment in history, we do get to reach the nations right here from the corner of Neville and Ellsworth. And as Christians, we are a people of profound hope. Our hope lies not in our military strength or our economic power, our politics or presidents. Our hope lies first and last, only and always, in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Glorious, the glory is all to him. Lord, he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus, which means Savior. Christ, which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. It is in him alone that we place our hope. Now, I know this nation doesn't particularly want to hear this. I know we're not a Christian country. Let's not kid ourselves about that. But we, sisters and brothers, are made in the image of God. And we who proclaim Jesus as Lord are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. As one Christian writer, Andrew Walker, describes this hope, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint and a Revelation 21 future. Let me unpack what he's talking about. We do live in a Genesis 3 world, a world that is marked by the consequences of sin and the fall, where we see brokenness and disorder, despair and destruction. That's how, where we live. We know that. And yet, we do not lose sight of the blueprint of Genesis 1, where we see a glimpse of humanity as it was meant to be, as God created it to be, designed by God, beautiful, good, with man made in the image of God, male and female created in his image. Now, today in our Genesis 3 world, that image is distorted. Work has become toil. Man rules over woman instead of ruling together, as in Genesis 1 and 2. And we could give many more examples. And yet, thanks be to God, we live with the hope of Revelation 21. The hope of a new heaven and a new earth, of all things being made right. Where there'll be no more crying, no more mourning, no more tears. Let us hear afresh the challenge from St. James's letter today. We who are so materially wealthy have a responsibility towards the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the downtrodden. Our new pews that you're all enjoying, I'm glad to say, have not been arranged in first class, club class, economy plus, and economy. They are open to all. We are indeed called to welcome our neighbors and reach the nations. In so doing, may our faith be evidenced by our works. Amen.